Would you open up to Galatians chapter 4? Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 8 through 20. For those of you who are unaware of where I hearken from, I am an Iowa boy, born and raised in the farmland. The town that uh, I spent a lot of my childhood had no more than 200 people, so Manhattan is a booming metropolis. And uh, when I when I came to Chicagoland way back in '88, I started noticing that people have animals in the house. And this was really a very odd thing for me that animals are living actually in the house. There is no way my dad would ever allow uh, any kind of feline or canine in our home. It was that they animals belong outside. Cats were there to catch the mice and the dogs were there to maintain anything that would go on in the yard. The, the coldest days of winter, the dogs still stayed in the barn, and somehow they always survived. We went through a number of different uh, dogs uh, as a child. Uh, one, I think I've told you about Muffin, who met his uh, unfortunate de- demise due to me telling him to sick the mailman, and the mailman rode over him. <laughs> Uh, We also went through a German Shepherd, but we also had a a Spitz. It's it's a type of breed of dog that was kind of uh, Pomeranian, if you will, but it was specifically a a farm dog. It kind of had a full body of white hair, and it it was a dog that if it knew you, you were covered with dog hair. Because it had this, this long hair that was just all over you. And it would lick you and it would love you. And it would come chasing after you. As soon as the bus would drop us off, that dog was right there at the dog's, at, at this bus stop waiting for you to get off. And then it would just run around you and chase around you. And it also had these amazing skills on, on the, uh, the, the barnyard to be able to chase animals and to keep them in their pens. And it let us know when uh, things were not going right. But when surprised, this dog named Bud was anything but welcome, welcoming. He was the kind of dog when something unfamiliar, someone unknown, or when startled, when somebody was coming up the driveway, he let the whole countryside know. The question is why would Bud be the type, and you, he was also the kind of dog you didn't dare get out of the pickup truck unless there was somebody, if he was barking like a madman, you were an unknown person, you didn't dare get out of the vehicle until somebody came. So why, why did Bud sound the alarm? What happened to his friendliness? And this honestly is even the question that we are going to see in Galatians. Paul is clearly agitated about something. You'll remember that the issue that is that 
what it takes ultimately. What does it take to be accepted by God? And Paul is saying it's Jesus plus nothing. Others are saying it is Jesus plus something else. And it doesn't take long to realize that Paul is agitated over this issue. He basically is saying that he is ready to beat up an angel or a messenger who preaches that we need Jesus plus anything else to be saved. So here's the question. Why is Paul now sounding the alarm? Why is he like this dog that is barking and is ferocious? This morning's passage gets to the heart of the question. And it's an important because we are going to see why we need to sound the alarm as well as whenever the gospel is lost, whenever anyone adds to Jesus in order to be accepted. We are going to see this morning, why is Paul sounding an alarm? So let's stand and read with me starting at verse 8 of chapter 4, reading through verse 20. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you because as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you. Now, and change my tone. For I am perplexed about you. This is the word, Lord. You may be seated. So here's here's the big idea. And I'll give it to you and we're going to unpack it. This is kind of the the big idea that I see here in this section. Because the gospel, we are to sound the gospel alarm because of what is at stake and because of love. 
We are to sound the gospel alarm because of what is ultimately at stake and because of love. So, first off, we are called to set off, to, to be like that dog on, on, the, on the barnyard. We are to, to sound an alarm, a gospel alarm because of ultimately what is at stake. Look at verses 8 through 11, would you? Formerly, you did not know God. You were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. How can you turn your back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I'm afraid I have labored over you in vain. In these few verses, Paul is telling us ultimately what is at stake. So it's important for us to see, because We don't easily see what is at risk when we add something to Jesus in order to be accepted by God. And so Paul gives us three pictures. We're visual kind of people. He gives us three pictures in these verses. First, he gives us a picture of what we were like before Christ. Then he gives us a picture of what we are like when we trust Christ. And then he gives us a picture of what we're like when we add something to Christ in order to be accepted. So before Christ, Paul says, listen, formerly you did not know God. And in fact, you were enslaved by those that by nature are not God. This is a a great description. Paul says that before Christ, we were enslaved by false gods. Now, Immediately, I start thinking, okay, Paul is talking to these, these real basic cavemen-like kind of people who are worshiping trees and are worshiping all these other kind of things. He is saying that he's talking about their pagan idol worship. And, and he doesn't mention their false gods, but there was known a various all kinds of various, a pantheon of different gods that were worshipped in temples. But Paul says something radical here. Worshipping anyone or anything other than God through Christ is slavery. He says that in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, no, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And he goes on to say, I do not want you to be participants with demons. That's our before picture. We are all, every one of us, all of us are are by nature, we are worshipers. We're hardwires to attribute worth to someone or to something bigger than ourselves. That is how we are wired. Every one of you are hardwired to be worshipers. The reality is, it could be religion. It could be anything. It could be a hobby. It could be a political system. 
It could be a philosophy. It could be a sport. It could be a job. It could be marriage. It could be your children. You name it, it could be that. Everyone worships someone or something bigger than themselves and looks to those things for ultimate meaning. Every one of us does it. We all attribute worth to something or someone else. And Paul says that two things are true about all of our worship before we come to before we come to Christ. He says first, before you come to Christ, anything that you worship, that is demonic. That that's hard words right there. The demons know that we are built to worship. And they're delighted if we worship anyone or anything, any system, anything other than Christ. They love it. They don't care what it is as long as it is not God. So first, Paul says, listen, if you're worshiping anything other than God, it is demonic. And secondly, he says, it is enslaving. It's enslaving. Whatever we worship other than God will enslave us. Tim Keller says this. He says this. If anything but Jesus is a requirement for being happy or worthy, that thing will become our slave master. Think about that. If anything, let's change the word. If anyone but Jesus is a requirement for being happy or worthy or complete or satisfied, that thing will become our slave master. David Powelson put it like this. Idols define good and evil in ways that are contrary to God's definitions. They, idols, establish a locus of control that is earth-bound, either in objects, lust for money, other people, I need to please, I, I need to please my critical father or myself, self-trusting pursuit of my personal agenda. Such false gods create false laws, false definitions of success and failure, of value and stigma. Idols promise blessings and warn of curses for those who don't succeed or fail against the law. If you get a large enough IRA, you will be secure. If, if I can get certain people to like and respect me, then my life is valid. So let's just pause here because this is important. Think about this. This is a picture of everyone who does not know Christ. We are all worshipers. We all look to someone or to something other than God for our ultimate meaning. And we are all slave to whatever enslaved to whatever that thing or person is. The demons love for us to be worshiping as long as we are worshiping something or someone else other than God. 
They love it when we are enslaved to our ideal marriage. They love it when we are enslaved to our jobs and our workplace. They love it when we are enslaved to and worshiping a job or a promotion. They love it when we love the idea of unity over Christ. They love it when we do all these kind of things. And they thrive on it. And it's terrifying. And we're often blind to it. So Paul gives us this, this picture of what we are like before Christ. That, that should be our before. What we were once when we were lost. And then he gives us this picture of what we are like when we trust Christ. He gives us a picture of what happens when we come to know the power of the gospel. He says, but now you have come to know God. And I love how he puts this little phrase in there. Or rather to be known by God. Before we did not know God. When we heard the gospel, we came to know God. And that doesn't mean just head knowledge. Okay? Head, it's not just head knowledge. It means to know personally and relationally and intimately. It's the knowledge that comes from friendship, not just reading a set of facts. Okay? But I love what Paul says here. He, said, he's, he does say that we come to know God, but then when he stops, he, he stops himself and he says, or rather to be known by God. It reminds me of reading uh, Tim Keller's excellent book, uh, The Reason for God. If you haven't read that book, I want, I'd highly recommend it to you. Uh, its full title is The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. Great book. In it, he shares a story of a woman who prayed, God, help me to find you. But she never seemed to get anywhere. One day, a friend told her to try praying, God, come and find me. And he did. A subtle change, right? God finds us more than we find him. In fact, before Christ, there was nothing in us that was searching for him. We were dead, dead in our trespasses. Before we ever knew God, God knew us. God chose us. We became the objects of his love. We know God because God first loved us. He loves us and graciously chose us to be his own. So that's the before picture, enslaved to other gods. And then we have this gospel picture, knowing God before, because he first knew us. That is a powerful, enlivening kind of picture that God knew me before the foundations of the world and he provided a way through his son to give me access, hope, life, meaning, purpose. And then we have one more picture. And this picture is when we add something to Christ. He writes, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world Whose slaves you want to be once more? Don't miss what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that adding anything to Jesus in order to be accepted by God is another form of idol worship. 
trying to earn God's approval by our own efforts is no better than good old paganism. Think about the pictures of what you, when you think about paganism or the the old time uh, idolatry, what would they do? They brought any kind of animal, alcohol, stuff, gifts to the priest so that it would be sacrificed, so that somehow the offering would be pleasing to God. Do anything just to make the gods happy, would you? And Paul is saying, listen, when you add anything to Jesus to be accepted by God, you're going back to your old form of idol worship. Justification by works is just as demonic and enslaving as idol worship. So what Paul is saying here is that there there are two ways really to be lost. There are two ways to reject God. And both of those ways, the, the demons are happy. One way is to reject God, to worship idols and look for our ultimate purpose and meaning and satisfaction in anything other than God. That, that is one way. One way that the demons are happy. The other way is to be lost and enslaved, is to be religious And to base our entire acceptance on anything other than Jesus. The demons would go, go ahead. I love that kind of worship. Yeah, go ahead. Work to please God. Come on, please him. Come on, work hard, sacrifice more, give more. Do whatever it takes to make God happy. And the demons are going, yeah, I love that kind of worship. Because it's actually what we love to do. So do you see what Paul is saying here? He's saying that there are a lot of people who think that they are Christians who are no better off than the idol worshipers. He's saying that the demons are quite happy if we come to church, if we read our Bibles, and we really strive to be just really good people, as long as we are basing our acceptance on our good behavior rather than on the grace of God that has been revealed in Jesus Christ. It's demonic and it's enslaving. And and the demons are thrilled with this version of Christianity. Michael Horton from Modern Day Reformation and uh, the White Horse Inn. uh, uh, One is a magazine and one is a podcast. uh, Wrote a book called Christless Christianity, which is another phenomenal book that I'd really recommend. Christless Christianity. He wrote this. What would it look like if Satan actually took over a city? The first frames in our imaginative slideshow probably depict mayhem on a massive scale, right? Widespread violence, deviant sexualities, pornography in every vending machine, churches closed down, and worshipers dragged off to City Hall. Michael Horton continues to write saying, over half a century ago, Donald Gray Barnhouse, pastor of Philadelphia's 10th Presbyterian Church, gave his CBS radio audience a different picture of what it would look like if Satan took control of a town in America. Listen to this. He said that all the bars and pool halls would be closed. 
pornography banished. Pristine sidewalks and streets would be occupied by tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The kids would answer, yes, sir, no, ma'am. And the churches would be full on Sunday where Christ is not preached. That is terrifying. You see what's at stake? We are in danger of embracing something that looks like Christianity, but is basically a Christian version of paganism. Why should we sound off this gospel alarm? Why should we do this? Why was Paul doing it? Because when we get fuzzy on the gospel, when we begin to trust our own performance, when we begin to lose sight of the cross, it actually becomes more dangerous than when we were pagans because we don't even realize what is going on. And Paul is saying, listen, there are two ways to be demonically enslaved. One is to reject Christ and Christianity and find ultimate meaning in worshiping something or someone else. That is one way. But the other way is to attend church, sing hymns, worship God, but trust in something other than Christ in order to be accepted by God. And if you do this, you are just as lost. And the demons are thrilled. So there's only one way to avoid being demonically enslaved. There's only one way. And that way is to put your hope in Christ and nothing else, no one else for your salvation. Put your hope, put all your eggs in Christ's basket and say, He and He alone is totally sufficient to save me from my sins. I can add nothing else to my salvation. Christ is enough. I need to look to Christ and to the cross as my only hope. And that is why Paul is sounding the alarm. There is so much at stake. It is why we have to sound the alarm as well. It's not, my friends, Christianity is not ultimately about morality. The implications of the gospel lead to morality. But Christianity ultimately isn't about morality. It's about Christ. And his sufficiency to save sinners like you and me. But there's a second reason, my friends, why we have to be like that dog on the barnyard who is sounding off the alarm. The first one was, man, because something is at stake. But the second reason that we sound off an alarm is because we do it out of love. The next few verses are some of... For Paul, some of his most intimate and painful verses to read. In these next few verses, Paul sounds off the alarm, uh, not just because of what is at stake. He sounds off the alarm because he loves these people. He has a heart for these people. And we see that one of the reasons we need to speak up is because 
Paul loves the Galatians and he wants them to experience the gospel in all of its dimensions. He says, you are missing out and I love you so much that I want to tell you. Go back to this dog. It's something hard. There were times that I just wanted to put that dog down because that dog would just bark at any noise that would go off in the middle of the night and he would continue barking. There's a reason why there are uh, those kind of bark collars. And I know some of you are going, that's inhumane. But I'm telling you, when you are awake in the middle of the night for like three hours listening to this dog bark because this dog heard something or saw something and wanted to protect you, you wanted to put that dog down. But that dog loved you enough to be barking and setting off an alarm. Barking is not always welcome. And it's hard to see much love in a ferocious bark. It's the same with Paul. Paul is raising this alarm. And it may have sounded hard at first to see Paul's heart. But ultimately, in this passage, he is opening up his heart. And he wants nothing but love. Love is the reason that Paul is so concerned about the Galatians losing the gospel. He wasn't going back to his pharisaical kind of days of just rule keeping. He's going, no, I love you. Do not go back to that. Don't add to Christ. Remember what it is like to put your faith in him and him alone. It's not Jesus plus other stuff. It's Christ and Christ alone. So you can see Paul's love for the Galatians in three ways in this passage. And you get this beautiful picture of his ministry of what it was really like when he was with them. And it applies to you whether you are a pastor, a youth leader, a Sunday school teacher, somebody who opens and closes doors here, somebody who vacuums. One of the pictures that that he gives is that ministry involves entering, actually entering into people's lives. He says, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Paul was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He was very, at one point, very committed to the law. But the Galatians were Gentiles. And to reach these Gentiles, Paul did not just write a letter to this foreign city out there and just hope that it gets posted up in the town hall and just hoping that people get saved. No, what did he do? He went to them. To reach them, Paul became as they were, free from the Mosaic law. Paul, even though he was a a Jewish man, he became like a Gentile. And now he's amazed that they as Gentiles are trying to live as Jews. But you need to see the lengths of which Paul was willing to go to reach these people. He entered into their world. And he lived in their world. You can't minister to a person from distance. You need to get close enough and enter into people's lives. And friends, that's true for us. Do you want to minister to one another? The realm is not enough. Neither is Facebook. Neither is a text message. Get into people's lives. Get into their space. And I'm going to warn you right now, it's going to get dirty. It's going to get messy. And you're going to go, dear God, why am I in the middle of this mess? And and God's going to go, I sent Jesus. 
He entered in as a human, became like man, put on flesh. He walked among you. So there's that, that piece that ministry involves entering into the, the muck and the mire, the reality of people's worlds. But there's also, ministry involves some, uh, some I'm, I'm going to screw up this word, it's reciprocal. Repriciosity. Repriciosity? Thank you, that word. And you can see this in verses 13 to to 15, that the relationship is not just a one-way street. It's mutual. The Galatians received Paul. And they cared for Paul. They were prepared to sacrifice for Paul. They loved Paul. They welcomed him with joy. And his presence gave them a blessing. You can see that. You can see that ministry is highly relational. Not only did Paul serve the Galatians, but the Galatians served him. So ministry is this. We reciprocate back and forth. It's not just something that I do for you. There's something that the church does with and for me. But you also see here in verses 16 through 20 that ministry involves anguish. The false teachers wanted to benefit from the Galatians so that they would in turn receive flattery and fame. And and when you need, when you need someone to need you, then you can't get them what they give them what they really need. When, you, when it's a one-way kind of street, man, I need you to give me this. It's hard to give fully to them. In contrast, Paul was willing to give, give to the Galatians what they, they need, even if it caused him anguish and pain. And it did. In verse 19, he compares what he was feeling, and this is pretty gutsy for a guy. He compared it with the anguish of childbirth. Paul, a man, compares himself to a mother who's giving birth to them for a second time. And I'm pretty certain that most mothers in this room would say that one birth per child is all that you can take. Once is enough. As wonderful as your children are, you, you don't want to give birth to any one of them more than once. But Paul is saying it's almost like going back to the beginning and going through all of that pain and anguish again. He finds himself in anguish. He finds himself perplexed because of what is going on. It's like what somebody said about about, uh, writing. Writing is simple. You just open a, a vein and bleed. The same is true about parenting, isn't it? It's an incredibly simple thing. You just have a child and then devote the next 40 or so years of of your life to sacrificing everything for them. Pretty simple. Paul would say the exact same thing about ministry. All that it takes is entering into their world, loved and being loved, and being in anguish for their sakes. 
Paul is concerned because of what it's at stake, what's at stake, but he's also concerned because he loves them dearly. Paul wants the best for them. And I'm glad that he included this part in his letter because it gives us a window into Paul's heart. He's saying, I love you. Stop it. This hurts me and it is killing you. Stop it. This passage gets at the heart of why we're, I, we're even spending so much time going through this book. Listen, Friends, there's so much at stake in getting the gospel right. I hope you see the importance of the gospel. I hope you understand that there are two ways to be lost. One is to reject Christ and reject the gospel. The other is to appear to accept it, but then to add to Christ. Both are demonic. Both lead to enslavement. And the devil, like I said, is, in, is delighted with, with both. And I hope that you, you are seeing that the gospel is different from every other option that is out there. Whether you, whenever you add anything to Jesus, you subtract from him. And I hope you are getting the importance of the gospel, which is that Jesus has done absolutely everything necessary for us to be right with God. He is the only basis for our acceptance. There's nothing that you can add. But on top of that, my friends, I want you to know how much I love you as your pastor, as your friend. I, I've been pastoring this year day for 13 years and two months. That's a long time. But what Paul says... I think I can say too. I love you. And we need to get the gospel right. Because many of us are enslaved. And we are worshiping other things and trying to find those things to make us most satisfied and happy and secure. We have a history as a church. I have sacrificed for you. And you've sacrificed for me. I've been in anguish many times over you. And if I could be like Paul, there are times where I go through emotional childbirth over and over and over again for you. There's times where I want to look you in the eye and I, I probably should. I should look you in the eye and just say, stop it. Cut it out. Stop it. Quit trying to add to Jesus. Be faithful to him and him alone and allow him to mold and shape your heart. And out of believing fully in the gospel, trusting in Christ alone, by faith alone, he is going to start shaping you and molding you and becoming, you will become more and more like the one who has saved you. You will do things out of gratitude, 
out of love, out of adoration, out of worship, and not out of obligation. I want you to know why I am barking mad about the gospel. And those are the two reasons. Because much is at stake. Because I'm concerned about you. Your well-being. I'm sounding this alarm. Because Christ is enough. So my friends, as you gather in your missional communities, as you gather in your men's ministries and your women's ministries and you're meeting with your friends over coffee or beer or just conversations wherever you may be, remind each other. Christ is enough, you know. He really is. Sounds like you're finding satisfaction in something else. Can we talk about that? Sounds like your identity is more wrapped up in your job or your marriage or your kids or your whatever. Can we talk about that? Because a lot's at stake and I love you enough to have this hard conversation. So my friends, my prayer, prayer is that we grow in grace together to have these conversations that says he's sufficient. He's enough, and I love you enough to tell you that he's enough. Let's pray.